from my backyard. I can see the ocean. I can see the mountains. There's ponies and sheep and chickens. I'm in London four or five times a month. Location-wise, are you kidding? This place is magical. Hello, this is Andy Steves with the Andy Steves Travel Podcast. Today, we've got a good friend of mine on the show, Maggie Park, who works in the study abroad department at Bangor University in Wales. She's been living and working in Wales now for the last 12 years, and I'm excited to share a bit of her story. Originally from Pennsylvania, Maggie studied abroad, did her master's, and completed her PhD on van and book-to-film adaptation management for big-time films like the Twilight and Harry Potter series. For those who are interested in pursuing international careers, I think you'll be able to pick up a lot of good tips from this episode. Let's get to it. Sharing tips, tricks, and tales from around the globe, this is Travel for the Next Generation. You're listening to the Andy Steves Travel Podcast, episode 13. I have a wonderful friend of mine, Maggie Park, on the phone with us today. We met uh, a few years ago at a study abroad conference, and we've just um, uh, stayed in touch over the last few years. She is a international student administrator. I'm sure there's a, a better term for that, um, but coming into the University of Bangor, or maybe it's, is it Bangor University? Banger University, yep. Banger University, which is a wonderful school in Wales. And uh, it's just a beautiful place. And of course, Maggie also did her thesis on Harry Potter. So I, f- I figured we'd uh, uh, dive into that a little bit. Well, Maggie, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'm pretty pumped to chat with you. Sounds like fun. Well, what I like to do is let's start with your your background. Where are you from originally? And kind of walk us through what led you to to having spent the last decade or so in Wales. Yeah. And you have a Welsh passport now? Oh, no, not yet. I'm still still a little ways off from that. But uh, um, yeah, I'm originally from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, grew up there, and when I was eight years old, I read these books called The Dark is Rising Sequence by Susan Cooper, and it's kind of like a kid reading Harry Potter and wanting to go to Hogwarts. I read these books, and I wanted to live in Wales. So from when I was about eight years old, I got pretty obsessed with Wales. Um, and when I was 15, my family took a vacation over to the UK, and my dad planned the England part of the trip, and I planned the Wales part of the trip. <laughs> um, then when I was 20, I was going to school at the University of Mary Washington in Virginia, um, always knew I would study abroad. For a hot second, I considered building boats in Bali, but decided to actually stick with going to Wales um, and had the, the best dream, semester huh? of my life. Yeah. yeah, had the best semester of my life at Bangor University. Um, almost transferred there to finish my undergrad degree, but went back and finished it in Virginia, but then decided I wanted to spend more time in the UK. So I went back to Bangor for my master's in Arthurian literature because it's the best place in the world to study King Arthur. Why not? Sounds like fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, thought I was done with academia at that point, but then I got offered a partially funded PhD in film and digital media. So I uh, studied um, the adaptation of event films and fan management. Um, we can get into that later, but oh I looked goodness. at how books, like really popular books, are turned into films. I worked on the sets of Twilight and Captain America, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings were my case studies. Um, I do still work in film, but my day job 
is working for Bang University. Um, I'm a country manager for them, so I take care of all of our relationships in North Central and South America. North um, Central yeah. and South America. So, um, yeah, let's let's talk about that just for a second. So, just so people understand, you help um, uh, Banger kind of extend its reach to students who may be interested to come to Wales from Mexico or Brazil or Canada or also the states, huh? Exactly. Yeah. So it, it means anything, really. Um, we have study abroad students that come just for a semester. We've got summer programs. So they just come for two or three weeks and take some banger classes. Um, we've got full degree seeking students. Um, and then I also help set up research links, faculty exchanges, um, just kind of any university relationship that we would have with an international partner. I help maintain the relationship in the Americas. Um, but it's mostly talking to cool students that want to change their life and come abroad. There you go. Well, hey, if you want to change your life, head to head to Banger. Huh? It's a good way to do it. Yeah, <laughs> I think you and I can do that. <laughs> it seems like you um you've been very successful at this. So they've given you a, a long what's the expression? A long leash or a long rope in, in terms of giving you a lot of flexibility to pursue different ways to to recruit people. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Banger's been really understanding and flexible because they they are very good at supporting their team. So uh, they trust that I know what works best in my markets and. Um, so far, I think that has worked. <laughs> um, so yeah, we basically have a lot of autonomy in our markets and are given a general budget to manage both regions. So I have a North America and a South America budget and it's mostly compiled of, of school fairs and things like that. So I kind of build my calendar around when there are fairs. So recruitment events like college fairs that you would go to when you were in high school, um, and grad fairs and stuff. But then around that I'll build in like partner visits and lectures and things like that. Now, one of the definitely a portion of the audience that is listening are students who have studied abroad or will study abroad, but know that they want to continue their international international lifestyle, you know, and and so for you, Wales was such an obvious draw, you know, it, it, it hits you from very early on. You knew that you wanted to um, uh, to go that direction. A lot of students are always asking me, how do I take, you know, just this idea that, hey, I want to go and work abroad into actually making it happen. Do you have any anything to share or tips so that so that listeners can look at you as an example? Uh, there's the the sad news is there's no quick answer to this. Yeah. Um, I think you have to just keep doing what you want to do. You know, I mean, I think you're probably in the same boat of you just make it happen. You create the atmosphere that allows you to live the life you want to live. So we as a society are restricted by things like visas and limits of term time that you can stay in country and how you're allowed to work and things like that. So you absolutely have to be aware of the confines that you're working within. Um, but with student visas, it was an excellent way to spend a little bit less money than I would ever consider spending in the US because degrees are way more expensive there than they are in the UK. So I could spend a bit less money for a master's, spend a full year there, work part time. So all those things could happen for a one year master's. So for me, it was a really simple step to say, okay, it's just one more year. I'm going to work towards a master's, which isn't going to hurt me anyway. Yes, it's going to cost some money. I'm going to go into debt, but it's not horrible. It's not the school that's 48 grand that I was looking at in the US. And I can work part time. So for me, it was working part time in my field. And I kind of made myself a little invaluable to my team. So they created a job in my office. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's let's talk about that tuition aspect just a little bit and, and really emphasize that because as Americans, we, um, you know, we pay some of the most expensive tuition in, in the world. Right. And we don't really realize that because we don't consider other, you know, other countries necessarily to, to, to pursue higher education. Yeah, as an undergrad, I didn't even know this was an option. You know, I only looked within like four hours of my parents' house. As a grad student, you, you know, are a little bit more independent, so you're looking a bit further. 
Um, but yeah, I didn't even know it was a thing. But yeah, the only two schools I looked at in the U.S. were 48 grand a year and 52 grand a year. And schools around Banger in worldwide rankings are 35 to 55 thousand U.S. dollars per year, and we're 16. You know, I mean, that's insane. Like when I was looking at a one-year master's at Banger, which is completely equal to a U.S. degree, and I could do it in one year, not two, and I could spend sixteen thousand dollars, not forty-eight, and I got a ton of scholarships. There's, um, I got my tuition down to six thousand dollars a year after scholarships, and then for that, I filled out the FAFSA because we're a FAFSA school, and I got U.S. loans to pay for the rest of my degree. So yeah, it's. I think people are baffled when so, I say so this. You could actually like, pursue American um, funding or American scholarship for studying internationally. Totally. Yeah, there's I think there's only like 30 or 40 schools in the UK that are on the FAFSA list. But yeah, those but that'd that be are, a great place but... for people to start who, you know, everybody's on a budget, you know, if totally. and if you're thinking about uh, pursuing higher education, like that'd be a great place to to mm -hmm. at least look at that list to see if anything fits the bill. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And in the UK, you're allowed to work up to 20 hours a week, too. So you can get a part time job on your student visa that helps pay for some of that. And a lot of people will use U.S. based scholarships because a lot of them don't have country restrictions. So if you're looking at like Rotary International or the Optimist Club or, you know, things like that, most of them don't care where you go as long as it's an accredited institution. And obviously the UK, some of the oldest institutions in the world, they're well accredited. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, you making yourself indispensable to the the office that you wanted to work at, that's something that I'm always telling, um, you know, people who are interviewing me or uh, thinking about it myself is if you want to work somewhere, you got to bust your butt to, to and, and earn your place first before you expect any sort of real compensation. It's just a way to get your foot in the door. And then, you know, then the next things follow, right? But um, totally. so so is that how you you went about it? Yeah. And I think it's a lot easier when you are insanely passionate about the topic. You know, like, I never questioned volunteering with the international office when I showed up at Bangor Wales, because I wanted to do that. It was fun for me to talk to other international students who had just arrived and be like, isn't this place great? You know, and get all excited with them. So I just did it as a volunteer basis first. And then I started working for our study abroad programs as a um, student assistant. So I was the one that they met when they first arrived and showed them where the pubs were and, you know, which cell phone plan was best and all that stuff. And then started doing trips for the university. So then once the trip started, they saw return on investing in me, you know, with the travel and stuff. Because those were uh, optional that students would pay for, huh? Yeah, it was a different budget. We had this uh, student ambassador program. So the there were a bunch of ambassadors. Now there's about 40. But when I started, there were only six. Um, and they sent me back to the U.S. two or three times a year to do some events and do some school visits. And they went really well and it worked well in the office and I kind of fit in. So I think when I was coming towards the end of my PhD, they realized they needed a North American person and they created that job. I say the same thing to my uh, film students and, and students studying that um, when I talk about what I do in film, because you can't expect to just walk onto a set with a degree and get a job. People are not going to give you a job because you have a PhD behind your title. In fact, they're going to laugh a little bit because what good is that to me if you don't know how to work a camera? Like, you have to let yourself go in at the ground up. Don't be a jerk. Be helpful. Be passionate and happy mm -hmm. and show up on time. <laughs> and that's like the main way I think people keep having you back if you work hard and are not a jerk.
So <laughs> that's great. This is, yeah. um, th- I think this is some great tips for, for listeners for sure who are trying to break into whatever industry they're trying to get into. Um, if you can give us the, the executive summary, if you will, of, uh, you know, of what you spent a, a year or two of your life on or more. Oh, four or five years of my four life or five on. Four years of your life. <laughs> yeah. PhDs in the UK are three years, but I took a uh, write up year. So it was, it was just over four, I think. Oh my goodness. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, originally, it was just because I wanted to stay in Wales. And I had this cool idea that I wanted to look into about how heroes change from book to film. I'd been looking at like Harry Potter and stuff. And a lot of Ron's lines in the book are Hermione's in the film. And I was like, Oh, that's weird. So that was my original idea. But uh, the first year of my PhD, I spent in the US doing research. And I just happened to be in Oregon when a friend of a friend was second assistant director on Twilight. And she said, Oh, I'm working on an adaptation. Would you like to come visit? At that point, I had no idea what Twilight was. So I read three books in three days, and the first day I showed up on set, uh, the fourth book wasn't out then, just if there's any Twihards listening. I know there's four. Relax. Um, <laughs> uh, so I showed up on set, and the first day I was there, a bunch of the fan site owners were on there on set as well, and the publicist was taking them around and schmoozing them and all that stuff. And it was just fascinating to see how they were treated and dealt with versus how I was um, as a filmmaker and film student and them as kind of a liaison between the fans and marketing experts and all that stuff. So, so they saw return and taking care of those guys because they had a, a big audience and following and were going to build buzz. Whereas you were, they were just doing you a favor sort of thing. Uh, yeah. I, I think for me, they didn't think much of me. We had good conversations, but I was just another body on set to chat about films with for a while. Um, I think they must have seen the possibility of return on investment because it expanded, obviously, from the success of the first Twilight film. Um, So that kind of changed my entire topic. So the rest of my PhD was investigating fan management and event film adaptation. So basically, I looked at filmmaker techniques, how they dealt with fan bases, how they worked with their fans. You probably know the answer. Like if you talk to your fans, if you don't treat them like crap, if you don't change anything too majorly and respect the author and stuff like that, you're going to make more money. But you'd be amazed how many filmmakers don't do that. So I was looking at actual practical procedures. Like what do filmmakers do to manage the fans? How do they communicate information? How do they work with the authors? And then how does that affect box office return? So I looked at a bunch of films that didn't manage their fans very well and they tanked in the U.S. box office and didn't do very well worldwide. And then I looked at ones that really managed their fan base as well, and they made bank wow, everywhere. You know, I, I'd never even thought about that. That makes a lot of sense, though. I mean, you're, you're taking care of the people who care about you. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure you mean both, but like physically on set, but also just kind of relations, responding to emails, yeah. websites, exposure, you know. All of the above. The stuff on set was so important for the the gods of the fandoms, which are the people that run the fan sites, the moderators and, and the voices that are ever present on fan sites. For Harry Potter, I spent a lot of time on LeakyCon. Well, I went to LeakyCon, but it was uh, Leaky Cauldron. Um, Twilight, man, there were so many. But Twilight Lexicon was the biggest one. Twilight Series Theories. Um, So there were a whole slew of things. And no matter your fan base, you'll have a a site that you go to to get your information. Um, If you're a fan of a rock band or something, sure, there's the official site. But I bet there's a fan site that has even more information. It's a little more more, unofficial and... Yeah, I mean, like Entertainment Weekly or People.com is not going to care about the coffee that that person got that morning, but I bet it's going to show up on the fan site. And I'm not saying that matters, <laughs> yeah. but fans care. <laughs> they're they're reacting to it. There you go. Now, um, so four or five years, did you ever hit like a wall? Did you ever, um, you're like, where do I go from here? 
I'm, I'm sure totally. there's yeah, totally. a, a few. Huh? Talk to any research student. I'm sure they hit a wall. Um, the research element part of the degree is amazing. You know, I worked on Twilight. I worked on Lord of the Rings Online, which is a, a game that's kind of like World of Warcraft, but uh, Lord of the Rings characters. I worked on Captain America over here in the UK. And then I started working with a production company here um, in development, doing script and story development. Since 2008, I've worked with them. So I had all this amazing, like applicable, hands-on industry stuff. But then I had to write it all up in a really academic way with footnotes and, you know, all that stuff. So I hit my wall probably about 12 months before submission. And then I realized all the work that I had to do. Um, so shout out to my mom and my friend, Jen, who really helped me get through that last 12 months. And my flatmate, Meg, who supplied me with a lot of gin. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Oh, man. And um, do you like the path that you took to get to where you are today? You know, yeah. is there anything that you would have done differently? Yeah, I think that's a really fair question because I, I think a big question that I get asked a lot is why did you do it in the UK versus the US or like what's the structure difference that supported you there? So it totally depends what you want to study. Um, masters, there's a fair bit of structure. You've got classes, assignments, projects, lab work if you're a science person um, for about nine months. And then the last three months of your master's is a research project. Um, PhD, there's no classes. It's just research. So you have to be really good at time management. Um, and you have to be pretty motivated to do what you want to do. You touch base with your supervisor every two to three weeks, but you're pretty much on your own pursuing this topic. So you've got to have a passion for the topic. You've got to be self-motivated and organized. Um, but for me, that was what I wanted. I never got into this to have a PhD in film. I got into this because I had a cool thing I wanted to investigate. Um, it's a benefit now that I have a PhD. It opens a lot of doors and everything. Um, but in general, it was just a really great way to kind of fall down that rabbit hole and figure out my research process as I went through it. Um, so it's not something for the faint of heart. It takes a lot of hard work, but I absolutely love the UK system for it. Was your advisor somebody that was into film studies or what was the background of your advisor? Totally good question, because um, that's another one I get asked a lot of, you know, what do you recommend I do? Well, you have to know the topic you want to do, but also have that conversation with your potential advisor. Your advisor does not have to do exactly what you want, what you want to do, but they totally need to understand what you want to do. They have to see the end result the same way you do, help guide you if it's a little bit off, you know, what's expected or what's academically, you know, viable um, and guide you in that direction. But they have to see what you're looking at. Um, so my supervisor was this wonderful woman, Samantha Rayner, and she teaches at UCL in their publishing program now. Um, and we just saw it the same way. And it was basically just we got to geek out together. And both of us have the same background with medieval literature. Go figure. So this digital media thing was fairly new to both of us. She was going down quite a different route than I knew was ethnographic research, how to collect information in an academic way, um, how to interview the ethics of interviewing, how to structure a research paper, how to start a lit review. So all these skills that I needed as a research student, but the topic I got to create. This episode of Andy Steve's Travel is brought to you by our new guidebook, Andy Steve's Europe, City Hopping on a Budget. It's available online and in stores now. This guidebook highlights the key information you need to know about our favorite cities like top sites, delicious restaurants, crazy nightlife venues, clubs, basically all to help you maximize your time, 
fun and budget while traveling through Europe. Check it out on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and of course, your local bookstore. Andy Steve's Europe, city hopping on a budget. Happy travels. I want to save some time to talk about Wales. I studied Italian for five years and I love Italian food, culture, the people, the history, everything. But I, I couldn't imagine uh, uh, moving to Italy and staying there for, for years. Yeah. But you, you've really adopted Wales and you can't, it yeah. seems like you can't speak highly enough. Wanting to visit and spend time there is one thing, but after you wanted to study, wanted to come back, spend more and more time, what was it that really kind of uh, made it sink in for you? Yeah, it's funny when you said um, you've kind of adopted Wales. I kind of feel like Wales adopted me a long time ago. Surely I must have been born here in a previous life or something, because I don't know how else you explain this kind of obsession with a place that most people don't even know or still spell with an H in the name or something like that. But um, and and my my taking it as my home was a bit of a slow process, to be honest. I mean, I started with a semester abroad. It was only four months. Then I signed up for a master's. That's only one year. Then I decided to extend that for a year. So it was just one more year. You see where I'm going? Like, And then it was just three years for the PhD. And then it was just – so I did it in small bits. But now I've kind of been here 11 years as a grown-up. You know, I mean, I decided to move here when I was 22. So any independent grown-up decision I've ever made has been here. Um, <laughs> and that's been awesome. For better or so, for worse, huh? For better or for worse. Um, why I came here, I mean, originally it was from those books, but why I stayed, first of all, the location, if you just Google Snowdonia National Park, holy crap. I mean, it's stunning. It looks like Middle Earth. You took me there, right? When, when I visited yeah. once. Yeah. Yep, and, yeah. We uh, went up Narvin Castle and into the mountains and. That was absolutely beautiful. Oh my gosh. In, in Game of Thrones, like all of a sudden people are discovering like the remote North coast of Ireland or, you know, random yeah. parts of Croatia or this or that. And, I, um, you know, Wales, most of the countryside looks straight out of the set. It completely is. Uh, it's the landscape that inspired Tolkien when he was writing Middle Earth. Um, and he's he's admitted to that. And Guy Ritchie has a new like three part King Arthur film coming out, all filmed up here. Um, it's just a stunning scenery. So my front yard, literally from my backyard. First of all, I live in a chapel conversion from the 1830s. Like, that's silly. You live in a converted church. Yeah. Yeah. It's, in it's the ground adorable. floor. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like from my backyard, I can see the ocean. I can see the mountains. There's ponies and sheep and chickens. My city is a city with like, you know, the arts hubs and all that stuff. I'm in London four or five times a month because there's direct trains every day. I can pop over to Dublin for the day. Like location wise, are you kidding? This place is magical. Mm -hmm, so it's just mm -hmm. easy to get around, but you feel like you're in this small, safe, little, beautiful place that nobody's heard of. Cause that, that's the thing I like about it. Obviously there's tourists here, but it's not like. Uh, you know, Galway or Edinburgh or the bus tours that you see all through Scotland. Like it's kind of the hidden jewel. People are super friendly. I absolutely love the living Celticness of it. Um, Welsh is, is the first language here for most people. So like 90% of the population in North Wales speaks Welsh as their first language. They all speak English too. So you're fine if you don't speak Welsh. But I find that so remarkable because, you know, being so close to England, you know, you look at uh, Ireland, for example, and not many of them speak Irish, but, uh, but you know, Wales shares the same landmass as England, and uh, but that that identity is still very, very mm -hmm. strong all the way down to the language. 
Well, there's a real commitment to it. I mean, it almost died in the 70s. Um, it was illegal to speak Welsh in schools, you know, not too long ago. And then in the 70s, they changed school curriculum. So it was taught. And now it's, you know, everybody speaks it. There's TV channels, there's radio stations, everybody in my office speaks it except for like five of us. So I've gotten very good at listening in. Um, I am studying it so I can speak a fair bit back. A little bit more when I've had a pint or two, but for the <laughs> most <you> part. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if uh, obviously Wales is just an easy train connection, like we said, into the country, you know, if you had three days to visit, um, what would you recommend? Would you say go to like one main city or would you say visit a couple different towns? Depends what they're doing. Um, if you're coming, like when my sister and my brother-in-law came to visit, they flew into Dublin, did a couple days there, took the ferry over to me, did North Wales, and then took the train up to Edinburgh and flew out from there. So there's so many different paths that you can do. So that's a popular one. And if you don't want to go up to Edinburgh, you can go down to London. Um, for North Wales, my favorite places up here are Conway and Carnarvon. I took you to Carnarvon. Um, Conway is this walled town about 20 minutes away where I'm going tonight for dinner. My favorite pub is there, the Albion. Uh, it's three microbreweries that joined together to buy this pub. And it's just an awesome atmosphere, open fires, dogs. I wrote a lot of my PhD in there. Um, the mountains, I mean, we're the outdoor pursuits capital of North Wales. So there's so much to do here with like outdoor sports and there's a man-made surfing location. There's an underground trampoline center with the longest and fastest zip line in Europe. Like it's just crazy what's around here. Wow. So I, I um, visited Maggie on, um, uh, via train from London, I believe it was. And as soon as I started, as I, as I crossed into Wales on the train, I started seeing these signs, um, or maybe it was a bus, but I started seeing these signs for all these different castle names that I recognize. It was from. a bus. I picked you up at like 1140 PM. <laughs> yeah, ah. It was a bus. Um, so, but we were, we were coming through and seeing all these different, uh, castle names that I recognized from the, some old computer games I used to play back in the day. <laughs> so I like, forgot that. I recognize right, that. Yeah. I recognize that. I recognize like Conway, Carnarvon, and, and I'm sure there are a few others, but, um, it, it feels like castles are sprinkled all over the place, right? Yeah, we've got more castles per square mile than anywhere in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, small known fact about Wales. There you go. And there's three within 20 minutes of me. English kings would come in and build castles as as a way to kind of um, tame the the wild tame. Celts. Yeah, well, it was a uh, Norman, but yeah. So the three castles within 15 minutes of me, uh, 15, 20 minutes, um, Beaumaris, Carnarvon, and Conway were all Norman castles. They were built by Edward I. Um, so his whole thing was about subduing the Welsh. So he built like this ring of fire in North Wales. That's what he called it. Five castles that circled North Wales. Um, so yeah, a lot of those are from there, but then there's also a bunch of Welsh castles, Dilbardin's only four minutes away in that direction. Um, I'm pointing just for podcast listeners. <laughs> um, and then there's a bunch of, uh, new build castles. So we have one called Penryn Castle that looks like Downton Abbey. Um, it's a mansion from a really rich guy built in the 1800s. Um, and again, I can see that for my house. Um, and it, it is a, a historic site and really beautiful and everything, but it's also part of life now. Um, Park Run is this thing in the UK. It's a 5K done at nine o'clock in the morning every Saturday morning at like 350 sites across the United Kingdom. And one of them's at Penryn Castle. So like you can meet up with a bunch of your friends and go for a 5K for free every Saturday morning and run through the grounds of a castle. Like, okay. Beautiful. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. Yeah, so there's a ton around, and they're they're livable and they're usable, not just these big tourist traps. Oh, nice, nice. So, yeah. um, walk us through just some of the major tourist towns or or cities that that people should consider uh, for a overnight visit. 
Um, overnight visit. Well, it depends where you're staying. If you're coming up from London or something, obviously Bangor sounds like the big stopping point and it is like the big city, but I think of Bangor as a very functional city. If you want to be a tourist for a night, go to Carnarvon or Conway. If I have a friend visiting just for a day, I tend to take him to Conway. Mm-hmm. So cute. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to look down at South Wales, Cardiff is awesome. Uh, it's the capital city of Wales, uh, but it's really small. It's only 350,000 people. So super walkable. Really cool sites. Millennium Stadium is there, so go catch a rugby match if you can. The towns on the coast are incredible. So if you get out to like St. David's on the Pembrokeshire coast, or up here, if you get up to Anglesey, um, Beaumaris is a really beautiful place. Nice. What about um, cuisine? Is there anything like cliche Welsh or like typical Welsh that we should look for? There are some cliche Welsh things. There's a there's a town by me called Betisicoid, which I'll send you a link to because it doesn't look like how I just said it. It looks like Betsy Coed. And there's a restaurant there called Three Gables um, uh, or Bistro Betisicoid. They have two names, I think. And they have some really great traditional Welsh things. Like they start the meal off with lava bread, which is a bread made with seaweed. Um, and they end, which sounds really gross, but it just means it's a really salty, dense, moist bread. Ew, I hate the word moist, sorry. Um, <laughs> moving on. And then they end the meal with um, Welsh mead. So you have some some honeyed mead. Um, lamb, obviously, is the big thing in Wales. Sheep outnumber us like 10 to 1 or something crazy like it's that. It's like New Zealand. Yeah, it is like New Zealand. Yeah, just smaller. <laughs> Um, so cuisine wise, there's definitely those. We do have a bunch of really fancy, nice restaurants up here too. So if people are looking for something a little bit more posh, we've got a couple places up oh here with gosh. rosettes. And you took me to that, that seafood place that was delicious. Oh yeah. I took you to Dylan's. Dylan's is a, it's turning into a chain. They just announced they're going to open their third restaurant in Flandidno, but the original one is in Menai Bridge right on the water and they serve uh, local, locally made ice cream, seafood, mussels are a really big thing. I'm not too knowledgeable about it because I'm allergic to shellfish, but you know, I hear oh, they're right. amazing. I, I enjoyed but my meal. Phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. That was great. Oh my gosh. And um, what's the big sport that people play in? Oh, rugby. Rugby, rugby, rugby. Rugby. Oh yeah. Six Nations. And so when does that happen each year? Six Nations. Well, there's rugby year round. Six Nations is in the spring. And that, oh, let's see if I can name them. Italy, France, Wales, England, Scotland, and Ireland. Um, so they just take turns playing each other. And yeah, I went down to Cardiff last year for the Italy Wales game where Wales won like 68 to 14 or something insane like that. But the audience, the atmosphere, it's just awesome. Um, and you never have to fear for your life. Like you sometimes do with football. Really? <laughs> so, so it's a, it, it kind of draws know, I've a different crowd. Football match. I, really, I probably shouldn't say that, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a friendly crowd. It's not a, an angry crowd. Or maybe, maybe um, the Welsh are just more peaceful people. Let's go, let's go with that. But it's pretty fun. You get to put on a sheep hat or a daffodil hat or a dragon hat, have a beer, watch a game. It's pretty great. And maybe maybe it's also because the violence happens on the field, you know, rather than in, in football or, or soccer for Americans. It's exciting to watch, but maybe it's lacking that, that real uh, conflict, who, who knows, in, in front of you. So it has to happen in the stands. It could be, yeah. I, yeah, I feel like I'm just going to make some enemies saying this, but like football, I just it's just not my thing. Sorry, gang. But rugby, man. And I never liked rugby till I came to Wales. It's it's been a slow grow, and I absolutely love it. So yeah. And you mentioned the dragon. I think I'd love to wrap up with that. Tell us about the dragon. What's the significance? Yeah, the Welsh dragon. If you guys uh, take a look at the the Welsh flag, you'll it's one of the most beautiful flags in the world. And yes, I'm a little biased, but that's fine. Um, it's a green field on top, a white field on the bottom. Or wait, maybe it's the other way around. It's a green and white background with a red dragon on it. 
And the red dragon is from the King Arthur legend. Um, Merlin foretold that the white dragon would be killed by the red dragon. And the white dragon represented England and the red dragon represented Wales. And there was a battle that was fought and, yep, red dragon prevailed. So the red dragon has been the symbol of Welsh pride for all time, really. Um, But yeah. I see. And that's also, you know, that was one of the um, pieces of swag that you shared with me. Um, I have a little stuffed red dragon uh, at my place in Prague. Yes. Yep. He's our uh, school mascot. He travels with me everywhere I go. And we've started taking pictures of him on our trips and stuff. And even just today, I'm leaving for uh, Peru and Colombia on Sunday. And I just packed up this box with like six little dragons sticking their heads out of the box like kittens. It's pretty cute. (laughs) Wonderful, Maggie. (laughs) Well, Maggie, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time. And I'll have to uh, come visit you another time. Totally. I'll save a pint for you. Beautiful. I'll look forward to it. Thanks again for listening. Find all show details, links, and tips at andysteves.com. You can connect with WSA Europe, Andy's tour company, at WSA Europe on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We'll see you next time. Happy travels.